you just go ahead and have a seat and uh, keep the lights down for a minute as I just feel in my heart that there are people who are really good people who just sang the prayer that I sang. That was a song, but really a prayer. Awaken, you were speaking to your soul like I was. And I, I just feel like the Lord's telling me there are some that, for whatever reason, maybe you're one of the, like the churches in Revelation, there's those words, wake up. Wake up. Repent. And then there's a king that I admire in the Bible, and most of us do. His name's David, and to be called a man after God's own heart's a big deal. I think we all agree. I wish for that in my life. I, I hope that's something that somewhere is true of me. But, but David went off the tracks. And you know the story. And he wrecked a lot of people's lives. And including in that wreckage was his own life. And then the, the Holy Spirit made sure that what he was going through, uh, he wanted to talk about and not hide. Not sweep away and not leave it there and never talk about it again. But it's something that he, he told about when he pleaded through prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not remove me from your presence and do not re remove your Holy Spirit from me. But renew to me the joy of thy salvation. And then I'll tell others, I'll teach transgressors, he says, your ways. And others will be converted to thee. If that's you in this room this morning, please accept Psalm 51 as an appeal from the living God to you. It worked in David's life. It brought him back. If you're watching from some other place and part of why you're not here is because you feel ashamed. You feel ashamed from yesterday. Not to mention the months in the past, maybe years, maybe a lifetime, would you just turn to Jesus Christ right now? We come to you today, God, collectively asking, not, I can't assume this for everybody, but I want you to awaken my soul. Blow through the caverns that might be there right now. Things that I don't do very well or don't do often or don't do at all because I found a way to conveniently walk around it like the people in the story of the Good Samaritan. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken my soul. Would you pray that right now just in whatever way, Lord? Maybe you don't even know what way. Just pray it, Lord. Holy Spirit, awaken my soul. Put in me the ability to feel you again. Restore to me, as David said, the joy of that day when I met you. My salvation. Take me back there, Lord, and any cluttered debris, garbage in the way, just take it out. Make it new, make it real, and make it alive. Because I need you, Lord. We all do. So make a move in our hearts today and in the days to come for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I want to thank you kids for being so uh, hanging in there. You know, go, go seek God now in your uh, kids club. You're going to love it. And uh, Kevin, thanks for moving the 
another leader, the leaders that stood in the back, sometimes we don't see them, but they're, they're a big deal here. And uh, in the live stream control room, you people are rock stars, I'm telling you. In fact, you who are on, online and watching, send in a check and maybe plane tickets for Maui for the people that are behind the scenes <laughs> that make it possible, right, for you to see and hear this. It's really cool, so... And if you have an extra ticket, throw one in for me. I'll be happy to escort them and all that stuff. But, um, so I want to uh, ask you a question. It might seem strange from a guy that's uh, stood at a podium for a long, long time. Uh, have you ever felt super intimidated? Right? Uh, most people rank speaking in front of others as one of their top fears, uh, maybe right below uh, getting, you know, um, I don't know, brain surgery without Novocaine or something. I mean, no, it's a big deal. You know, intimidated is a soft word for what some people just go, no, don't ever put a microphone in front of me. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some ideas. I mean, maybe, maybe we could all tell a, an intimidating story. Um, Maybe you um, were asked to um, fix a meal for royalty. I don't know, or or maybe just for your (laughs) in-laws. It could have been one of those. And either one of those would make you go, oh, no, what do I fix, you know? Um, Here's another one. Uh, Maybe you were asked to address a gathering of brilliant scholars and uh, or, or, or... your teenager, <laughs> right? Both bring you like a, a quiver. What do I say to correct a teenager without them turning you off? Um, or maybe you're a vocalist, and we see them up here, but maybe you are, have gone places with your voice and talent musically, and you've sung at the national anthem, let's say, at a stadium. Imagine the game today. It's the Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know who's singing it, um, but I, I'm sorry. It's, I think it's an indoor stadium, right? Indoor? Is that true? Wow, no one cares about the Super Bowl. How many are getting together for food today? See, there's a good thing. That's reality check. That's what, that's what I care about. Um, but... Um, you know, indoor stadiums are a bummer because the thing, I, if I was at a Super Bowl game, I'd love to watch F-16s fly overhead and, and not drop anything, but just keep going, you know. But, um, but if you, maybe you're one of those. You've sang at a stadium, at an arena, maybe the, the Moda Center here in Portland, uh, or, or maybe you've just sang a solo in church. Intimidating, both, all of those. Here's one for you. Um, Maybe you were asked to uh, provide premarital preparation or counseling for a couple that asked you to officiate at their wedding. It happens to be that they, um, that, that the two of them had a doctorate and an advanced master's degree uh, between them in counseling. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and now you can experience my sweaty palms, even as I tell you that again years later, right? And, and in case you're curious, I, I did great. <laughs> I mean, actually, I was outstanding, right? Because they said so. I mean, it was just like, wow. I, I mean, my palms, I'm tempted to have you feel my hands, but that'd be gross. So anyway, um, but that, that moment, I remember thinking, in fact, I told him, you guys could counsel me. You guys can, let's reverse the tables. And I said, no, 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 no. We have lots to learn here. And I'm like, huh? Who are they looking at? Who are they pointing to? You know, that kind of thing. So I'm trying to help you imagine something. I'm, I want to help you and I imagine what the Apostle Paul might have felt when he was inv- invited to address I'm going to call them a think tank. I'll have other words as the morning unfolds. But these are high-pressured, uh, very sophisticated intellectuals in Athens. My Bible's open to Acts 17. That's where you're going to find with me 
some amazing things. But this gathering that he stood before was a gathering of philosophers and, and scholars in ancient Athens. It's a long ways away. It's, it's in Greece, okay, just to give you a little point of geographical reference. And in that day, in that day, you ready for this as you're turning to Acts 17? They were recognized as the epicenter, Athens was, of genius thought. So the city was home to many famous philosophers uh, through the centuries. Listen to this list. Uh, Aristides, Pericles, Socrates, or if you're... um, Familiar with the movie in the early 70s, Socrates, dude, right? Bill and Ted, it's excellent adventures, remember? That's stupidity at a new level. But uh, anyway, Socrates, here's a couple more you probably have heard before. Aristotle. How about Plato? No, not Plato, not that kind, the, the, the brilliant scholar. It would have felt... It would have felt like you had been asked to address the brightest minds from Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Dartmouth, and Chemeketa Community College, (laughs) which is where I began my esteemed academic career, okay? Um, and, and, And here's the deal. Gathering like that, like standing room only, we would say, and they were enwrapped attention to what you had to say. Uh, <sighs> now, um, it, was, um, it was a place in the city of Athens called the Areopagus. It was known as, some of you have been there probably. Have you been there? Have you been there? A few, look at that, that's cool. And it was, I'm a, my label, Heady, Heady Hill, okay? It was a, uh, a place where, um, actually, the Roman name for it is a name we're more familiar with, uh, Mars Hill. And it was that place. It was where political and judicial matters were adjudicated and decided and Ivy League debates, like I'm trying to capture here for you took place. All there. Areopagus in Athens. So now for a quick backstory. Paul had arrived in this city last time we were together. And and he was under escort from some believers to the north in Berea. And you say, how did he get here and why? Well, only days earlier for Paul, you'll, you'll recall he had been whisked away quickly Because the same troublemakers, Jewish troublemakers, that didn't like him, and it wasn't a hidden secret, not only gave him grief in Thessalonica just before Berea, but then they they catch word, hey, hey, we know where he went. And they went after him. And they found their way to Berea, and they were about to create more grief for him. And they whisked him away quickly um, to Athens and It went like this, verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up, just like they did in Thessalonica. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. We're not sure if he he took land or sea, but it's right on the coast. Went south, the believers immediately sending Paul south, and they left Silas and Timothy in Berea. Look at verse 15. Those who escorted Paul brought him here to Athens and then left with instructions from Paul for Silas and Timothy back in Berea to join him as soon as possible. So you got Paul here actually alone for a little bit. And uh, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, we just read, to arrive. But he wasted no time as he began to roam around and check out the city. He he it was a it was this wandering around the city that caused a reaction in him 
that's worthy of notation. He didn't just go, wow, cool things. Wow, what a building. Some of you that have been there to Athens, you would say that today about ancient relics or artifacts. You'd go, you'd take selfies and pictures like that. But Paul roamed around just like you and I would if we were there. Only in his case, there was an impression that I'm going to call it, 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 it aggravated him. It stirred deeply, and it was oppressive in no small way, leaving him with a couple of standout words, angry and sad. Now you're ready to read verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day after day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? That's not exactly a term of endearment, okay? What's this joker doing? What kind of nonsense is he talking? But others remarked, he seems to be actually advocating a foreign god or gods, it says. They said this because Paul was preaching, dial in on verse uh, 18, he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting in our city. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time, Luke notes, doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So what stirred Paul's heart so deeply? We're told straight up in verse 16. First impression is not just that there was a little darkness or uh, turn your head, don't look at that, that's sinful. But what does verse 16 say? A city loaded with darkness. Full of idols. You're going to hear the word God this morning. I will try to distinguish that. It, will, it won't be necessary most of the time. But we're talking about little g, God. Not big G, the living God. Because Athens was loaded with little God stuff. And Paul is talking about the Lord, the Creator, the, the big God. And I mean that deeply, respectfully. Um, it was said of Athens, there were more statues of gods than in all the rest of Greece put together. And that in Athens, it was easier to meet a god, little g, than another person. Um, that's a big deal. Scene reminds me of Jesus when... Um, we're told in Matthew 9, it's a wonderful picture. I'll just capture it for you quickly. He's, uh, he's, he's traveling with his disciples and he's sharing these very things, talking about the kingdom of God. And he's, uh, and he, and he's going big cities and little cities and countrysides, Jesus is, Matthew 9. And when he looked across at the crowd, he saw something. I'm making, I think, a fairly good assumption the disciples did not see it. He did, and it, it, was, it, it like took his breath away, we would say. But the disciples were like, hey, we're on a roll. This is cool. Look at the crowds, right? Like I would. I'd go, we've got the man with us. Boy, he pulls in a crowd. This is dialed in, baby, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and Jesus is not just not getting it or not into it the way they were. He's... It says, when he looked at the crowd, he saw them as distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Huh? Said the 12 disciples with him. Huh? 
Can you imagine being in that moment? But Jesus saw something that was deeply impactful. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. It wasn't just the condition. He went, man, that is, that is so avoidable. You shouldn't be in that position. No, it was Jesus that went, oh, oh, more, oh, oh, more. Everywhere they went, there was, there was a, a sadness, an oppressive spirit going on there. So let me ask you before we move forward any further in this. We're going to get to his speech now because he's invited to deliver. How do you see your city? I don't, I'm, I mean, <laughs> or let's make it not about a city like Tigard or Beaverton or Portland, but how do you see the people around you? It, it's, they, you know, you spend time with them at work, you spend time with them at school, you live in a neighborhood or an apartment complex someplace or a condo. How do, you, how do you see the people living there? Do you see them as distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd? Here's a thought. If you don't, either you live in heaven. I mean this in love. You're missing something. My neighborhood is mostly mannered. One, I, had a, I had trouble with a neighbor for a lot of years. You heard me talk about them. No more trouble. I, I, the, we get along. We really do. We pray for them. We, the, it's a different day. So our neighborhood's mostly mannered. And I don't know the destiny of their souls. I, I know that some of them are pretty uh, irreligious. We'll get to that in a minute. Nuns. Um, how, how, do you, how do you see your, your space, your people? Um, I have a cop friend who's, who works in Portland, and his answer to that question, uh, we asked him, a group of us here asked him once, during a Bible study in the days of all the riots, like months after months of riots, and, uh, and we asked him about uh, his answer to the question, how he sees the city. And his answer was very corrective to my heart. I, I don't think I ever really told him, but, it, but he said, you know, I see people in Portland who desperately need Jesus. And I thought, man, you've got things on your belt that could kill them a bunch of different ways or, or, or Go after that guy that threw a rock at you or a bottle hit you in a, in a, in a terrible riot. But I see, and it, he, wasn't, he wasn't making it up. He was just being forthright. Is that how he lives every day? I don't know. I suspect uh, no, but who knows? But what a great place to start, right? Anyway, that's got me thinking about this little early roaming around the city. When's the last time I was really deeply or greatly distressed by what I saw? Because you know there are people in need on your street or in your building or at work. But here's the deal. The deepest need of all, the most desperate need of all, is for those people to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about the people really broken by drugs or some other malady. It's, it's, it's universal. We all need Jesus. Remember the song, People need the Lord. When will we realize they need the Lord? Um, some may uh, say, some I think, I just want to be fair. Some of your uh, Epicureans and Stoics, the people on your street, they may conceal it really well. But um, the, the, they are spiritually lost. If you're hearing me this morning and Jesus is not on the throne of your life, I say because the Bible says you're spiritually lost. In fact, it uses other words like blind in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can look it up. It's Jesus' words. He doesn't say, well, you're blind. 
He just describes it honestly. And, and bound is another word. Did you write those down? That's a different set of glasses through which to look. They're bound. Bound by who? I think you can figure that out, but it's right there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 20 to 26. Okay. Now, the people of Athens um, were, were loaded with intellect, and we've established that, but largely, largely, not completely, but largely ignorant of the one true God. Um, but on this day, they're about to encounter someone with not only a clear message, but with conviction and, and uh, boldness to share it all. And, they, and he did. He, he's about to deliver on that. Um, so he's brought up to the hill, and his presentation is fully contained in the verses that begin in verse 22. So he stands up in the heady hill, Areopagus, and says, people of Athens, I saw an artist's rendering of this, and I thought it was extremely cool. I don't know, I don't see, some. I don't know, it's just me, I see Paul in jeans and stuff. No, he had a big robe, it was cool. And probably consistent with the time. And he has this robe, and he has his hands lifted, and speaking to a crowd of people. We've established who that crowd is. So, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I'm going to just interject and say, I'll bet most of the people knew exactly which God, or which, uh, I should say, uh, object of worship he was referring to. So, so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship to an unknown God. Why would you have a shrine there unless you plan to worship? That's what he's saying. And this is what I plan to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in buildings, temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath, that great, and everything else. Verse 26, for one, for one man, from one man, he made all of the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Is that a God of detail or What? God did this. Why would God do this? That's why he answers. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him, for him, and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, which I saw around your city, an image made by human design and skill. Don't think of God that way. And he says, verse 30, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people in all places, to repent, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. He's done. I'm not. <laughs> His message is delivered. A uh, friend of mine made me laugh when he described philosophers. He said, the job of a philosopher is to present a simple concept incomprehensibly and then to convince you it's your fault for not understanding. <laughs> How many have ever felt that's true here at Grace Point? If you raise your hand, I'm leaving right now. I'm going to leave. <laughs> 
So my apologies, really, to you who are philosophers, or uh, because, um, and, but you're different than that. You're ones that are that that strive to say it, take, to take complicated, complex things and make them simple. Good for you. Keep doing it. We need to hear from you. You make it clear when others are interested in fog and haze. Just make it simple. I remember my mentor years ago said, Steve, the Bible's so full of cool things, interesting, exciting things. Don't bore people. <laughs> so I've, I, apologies to you too. I know we're going to go an hour and a half or two hours, but I don't care. You just told me you don't care about the football game, so let's keep going. Uh, yeah, no, I, um, I, I forgot what I was going to say. That's the Holy Spirit said, get back to my word, boy. Um, so Paul's here. He's delivered this message to the Ivy League crowd in Athens. And, um, and I'm going to say, I'm going to speculate it was impossible for them to ignore. They didn't get in a fist fight. There is no verbal shouting. Not a shout down, you know, Republicans, Democrats, none of that. It's all right here. Um, and I think it's, I'm going to call it a model. Uh, the, a model method for sharing Jesus. You see how he starts, verse 22. I mean, these are just principles in passing. But he connects with, his, with the people and where they're at. He's, he's establishing, carefully connecting to the audience. Uh, you know what he's saying there, verse 20? He's saying, you are dedicated seekers. There's no question about it. Um, we, would, we would say you are, um, I think that group was very much like the group that is a growing group in America, indeed in the world. I read a worldwide study that's very current about this by Hannah Waite. She observes spiritual nuns today are characterized by a range of spiritual beliefs and practices. That should jolt you back into the game. It doesn't mean they're replacing God. It means that they're, they're hungry for something. They're into, I read all kinds of quotes in this study, and they're into wanting to connect with their spiritual self, they call it. Is that cool? They've got, they've got interest in shrines and, and icons and blogs that go on and on from a, a bunch of perspectives. So as a starting point, maybe instead of assuming, as I have, that they got it all wrong, uh, dial in on that. You know, I see that you're very religious. I have a, I'm not sure uh, which religion exactly, but there's, there's, a, uh, there's a family altar in the home, a half a block from our house. And it's, the lights are on every night in there, and it's, um, it's some religion. It's, and that's not, <gasps> walk on the other side. It's, they're, they're, inter- they're, they're searching. That's what Paul is doing here. Um, as he walked around Athens. And then they connect, uh, he connects his message to their, really, their, their question. Uh, one of the objects of worship in a city that's probably very intentional to not offend the gods, because it's pluralism, it's, mon, it's, it's polytheism, it's gosh, you know, we're not sure which one it is, so make sure there's something for everyone. There's actually a religion in our, there's a, a place like that on Murray Boulevard near us that has a little something for everybody. I, I used to tease that it's a smorgasbord spiritually. Just take a scoop of whatever you want. And by the way, Jesus is in that. They got Jesus there. So that's the world we live in. Um, but connect it to Jesus right away, and Paul does that very thing. Verse 23, as I walked around, I saw this to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about who that God is. You have a sense. 
Why would you put that label except you have a sense that you're missing someone or something? It's an unknown God. I don't know who it is, but something tells me. Romans 1 is a read today. You've got to write that down. It's in your notes too, but make sure and read that because it's his invisible attributes make it plain as day, the Bible says, that there is a God. His name's Jesus. We've come to know him as that. Um, so Paul says that. I want to make him known. What was their question? Who is that God? We admit it. It's unknown. And Paul says he's Jesus. And the rest of his talk is about that. He talks about it in, from verses 24 to 29. Let me just highlight them and mention them. He is the creator of heaven and earth. That's what he's saying here. He is the God that created this world. That fact alone set, sets him apart from every other little g. Amen? We know the one true God. It was the one that actually said of himself, I am God. You ready? I hope you have your pen out. You say, where did he say that, Pastor? Where did he say that? Let me just give you John, the Gospel of John. How many of you have money in your wallet or purse, pocket or purse? Raise your hand right now. Okay, this will be easy for you. How many have a $1 bill? John chapter 1. A $2 bill. I tricked you. You were thinking of five, right? If you have a $2 bill, John 2. $5 bill, John 5. $10 bill, John 10. $20 bill, John 20. $50 bill. There isn't any chapter 50 in John. I just got you. Okay, just fooling with you. Actually, in a lot of other places, but in case you forget everything I said today, just remember the money in your wallet or purse, and remember in John chapter 1, 2, 5, 10, and 20, I can, I can affirm... The fact that Jesus is God, the Creator God. So, you're going to love it. There's some others in John, but those are the main ones. Okay, so, and then secondly, He is sufficient. He is all-sufficient. That means He doesn't need anything. He's not a God that's waiting for you to give Him something that He ain't got. It's not true. He satisfies people's need, verse 25, including the most basic need of all, life and death. Life and breath, I should say. And then thirdly, he's sovereign in all he does and acts according to his plan, verse 26 and 27. We just read it. Sovereignty is so cool. There's never been a time when God said, ah, that got away from me. Okay, correction. When he created cats, that was probably the day that it did not go well. So what was I thinking? <sighs> okay, there's no food in this room, so there can't be a food fight right now. Okay, just stop. Uh, that was, a, that was a uncalled for. I'm really sorry. What? Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to respond to any of the cat call. Uh, <laughs> Okay, here's a God. Imagine that, a God that says, I got it. I know what that balloon was that flew across your country recently. I knew what it was. I've got this. This is really serious to mention, but there's a terrible series of earthquakes that it was so bad it had me thinking. I actually read it again, the, the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew uh, 24, Luke, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21, where Jesus said, here's the sign that I'm coming soon. You know what it was in the middle of that? In every single telling? Massive earthquakes. Massive famines. So he's a God that's got all of this under his control. Jeremiah said it this way. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. I started this message that way. I'm going to finish it that way. If, if, if you're someplace else watching right now and you know something's missing, there's a, there's, a, there's a place for that God, there's a table set for that God in your life, but 
No one's ever taken that seat. Please, please give your heart to Jesus Christ. It belongs. He is that God. And, and it'll, it'll, it'll change everything when you do. He's the source, the only source of life. Can I add this? When he said in John 11, um, I am the resurrection and the life. He was saying to you, look no further, I've, I've got death covered. Belong to me, he who lives and believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die because you belong to the king of life, the Lord of life. I talked to a brother here this morning and we, we were just kind of sighing at how many people are, are leaving this life. They've turned for home. They've died. And, uh, and, and I thought, in all the ones that we mentioned, we know exactly where they turned for. It's called heaven, and it's home. Yeah, still hurts, but it's home. Because we, we miss them, and we would like to be with them, right? It's truth. Um, so when you share these things about God with people, before you're done, before you're done, please make it personal. Make it personal. It's more than information. God's expected response in verse 30 and 31 is worth reading again. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. I get it. You didn't get it. That's overlooking ignorance. But now he's commanding. Would you read that? Would you look at that again? All people everywhere to repent. For he said a day when he will judge the world with justice, with justice. By the man he has appointed, his own son, he's given proof of this plan to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. That's making it personal. Repent of your sins. The things that has, has been in the way, the debris we talked about earlier, repent. Just give it to Jesus. Be rescued, is what verse 31 is saying, from the coming judgment. The wrath of God for people that refuse to repent. That's, what, that's just judgment. I've given you a way, I've given you the only way, and you have said no way. And he's given proof of his plan to do that. Verse 31 ends by raising his son from the dead. How did it turn out? The same way it still turns out. Did you see how the chapter ends? When the elite, the Ivy League crowd, heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you more on this subject some other time. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people, a third group, became followers of Paul and believed in Jesus. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the elite, Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number, we're not told how many or who, of other people. Turn to Jesus is what this text is telling us. He's the only God who can save your soul. And here's the simple truth. Because you need Jesus. That revved up engine is saying, yeah, baby, yeah, baby. <laughs> it's true. So I, I um, <laughs> um, we reread Peter's words a long time ago in this 
in this study, chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no other name. There's no other method by which mankind must be saved but Jesus Christ. Amen. So before I have you bow your heads, on this Valentine's Sunday, I asked a couple, uh, friends of mine, Dale and Debbie Potter, to come up here very quickly to share how uh, Dale's response to the statement, (laughs) you need Jesus. Come on up, Debbie. Don't want anybody to stumble. And um, Dale's response long ago to the statement, you need Jesus, uh, changed everything. (laughs) Tell us how that happened. Well, uh, over 50, is this on? I think so. Yep. Over 50 years ago, I worked for the telephone company. And a few years after I had begun there, the place that I was working in Northeast Portland, Debbie got out of college and started work at the same company I did. I knew her family before I knew her. Uh, Her sister was in the same building I was, her mom, two of her brothers, her other sister, they all work for the phone company. Uh, I met her by voice to start with because (laughs) she would call our central office and report trouble that I would go fix and then I would have to call her back and clear the trouble ticket with her. This went on for a long time. Uh, That's a great was, strategy, by the way. Was, I'm just saying. I'm just, <laughs> I think it's really... It was good. very intriguing. Um, many of you that have heard Debbie speak have never heard her sing. Mm-hmm. I found out later how beautiful her voice was. She's my favorite singer. <laughs> 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 and she sang people... Uh, need the Lord also. Yes. Uh, I wanted to meet her in person. And one of the requirements that for that to happen, because we were both in our early 20s, I was 23, and single, and she was single. And in order for any relationship to go past that, uh, she required another believer. When we did uh, go out to lunch, after I pestered her a long time to meet, she actually agreed, but only if someone else would go with us. So we went to lunch, and someone else that she worked with came with us. And so I met her. I wanted to see more of her, but that was not going to happen without this. <laughs> When she learned about me and how my life was going, I was pretty, um, I was living a single life, a very worldly life. Uh, I knew about God. I saw the movie, The Ten Commandments. (laughs) I knew about church. I'd been there once or twice in my life. But she said, You need Jesus. Mm. It was the first time I'd heard that spoken that way. Because a lot of people would say, do you believe in God? But you need Jesus. What do you need Jesus for? You need Jesus for eternal life. You need Jesus to save you. Hmm. You need Jesus. In three days, we're celebrating 48 years of marriage. But the most important part of my relationship with Debbie is that I heeded those words almost 50 years ago. You need Jesus. So awesome. (laughs) Everything in me wants to have you sing right now, (laughs) Debbie, but no? All right, we're going to schedule her to sing, People Need the Lord, okay? Fair enough, fair enough.
Very good. Earlier I said make it personal. I think when Debbie said, dude, we don't date again until you come to Jesus, is making it fairly personal, in my opinion, but so incredible. Thank you for sharing. Would you bow your heads with me, and we're going to sing a final song. Lord, um, you said it well, and I want to repeat it again. Everyone, everywhere must repent and receive Jesus Christ. It's nothing less than that. There are no exemptions and exceptions to that. It's about you, Jesus. So I need to ask you, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I need to ask you in this room and wherever you're watching today or in days to come, have you surrendered to Jesus Christ like Dale and Debbie's story captures? It had enormous implications for their marriage and the children God has blessed them with for 48 years. But it has even more implications. It has eternity weighing in the balance. We've established you need Jesus. In this final song as we sing, Lord, I need you. Will you make it very personal? And if it's not settled for you, would you this very moment utter the simple, sincere words, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, because I need you. If you make that move today, or at some point in the future when you watch this live stream, Please, it's a timeless question, so please reach out. We'd love to talk to you about it. Let's stand together and sing, Lord, I need you.